Brothers and sisters, I am bringing greetings from my little Reformed church. I hope my accent will not be too burdensome for you. And uh, I hope that I would be able to preach God's word uh, faithfully and clearly. So that today's text is from actually R2. One is from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then the second text is from Psalm 16, verse 7 to 9. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us light. Thank you for rescuing us from our own thoughts about how to live our lives and giving us firm guidance. Thank you for uh, your grace, for your spirit who is uh, bringing us understanding how to live, how to be transformed into Christ's image. Thank you for your word and we ask that you would use it even today to make us more resemble Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. Now life is a precious gift. I know that it sometimes doesn't feel like that. Sometimes it hurts so much that you may rather willing to not to be than to be. But uh, each of you is here because God wanted you to be here. He sent you to this place. He conceived you in his mind and he brought you here in this world at this time because he wanted you to be here. And so life is a precious gift. We should not waste it. How not to waste our life? If you ask my father, who is a, not a Christian, he would say, don't waste your life. Go and travel. Uh, experience things, experience cultures, meet people. That's the way you do not waste your life. Somebody else might say, go make money. Go and learn, fill your life by learning. Go eat and enjoy life. Now we sinful beings tend to uh, build our lives around these things, to put them into the center. But God's word says something else. Our life should be centered on his glory. We are here to glorify him, whether we travel, whether we make money, whether we study on, or enjoy our food. His glory should be our foremost concern. We are to glorify God. As the shorter catechism says, that's the man's chief end. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So it's not only 
glorifying God, but also finding deep satisfaction in this activity. And that's what you can see in the uh, text from the psalm. You see that uh, psalmist says, I bless the Lord, which is a form of glorification, one expression of glorification. I have said the Lord always before me. He thinks about God. That's another way how to glorify God. And then he finds deep satisfaction in glorifying God. Therefore, my, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. So we see that these two things are not independent of each other. They are mutually related. If you truly glorify God, then you will find deep satisfaction, joy, and you will enjoy him. And if you want to find deep satisfaction and joy in your life, it will be impossible without glorifying God. But what kind of God are we glorifying? We can say many things about our God, and I chose just one. He is not a solitary God. Our God is eternal community of three persons, Trinity. And I think from the Bible we see the principle that our glorification of God is dependent on knowing God. And our knowing God depends where we are in the history of redemption. So we living at this place in the history of redemption know God in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to reveal us the Father and he came to reveal us and send his spirit to understand uh, his word and uh, the mystery of Trinity. So our God is not a solitary God, and to glorify him means to glorify him through Christ in the spirit. But that's not all what we can say. Our God is not a solitary God in another way. Our God is God who has bounded himself to his people through covenant. Since creation, he has been covenanted to his people. Since creation, he will never be God without his people. And since incarnation and resurrection, he has bounded himself to human nature, so he will eternally be Christ crucified. And so to glorify God, we have to take into account these facts, these things. Uh, so our glorification of God cannot be an individualistic enterprise. Sometimes we may read the catechism answer as if it was speaking about our solitary soul glorifying and communing with God. But uh, Christ is the king, right? And king is defined by his kingdom. To speak about king without his kingdom makes no sense. And his kingdom uh, means above all his people living in the true order of things. So to glorify God, 
always has to include horizontal dimension as well as vertical. This may seem be too general and too abstract, so let me be more concrete, more specific. Let me suggest that we glorify God by three ways beside others. We are to think about Christ and his kingdom, Christ and his people. We are to love Christ and his people. And we are to work for Christ and his people. Now, as human beings, we have ability to think about things. And that makes us different from animals. In animals, you may find some elementary thought processes, but animals never think about thinking itself. Animals never think about their creator. There is a qualitative difference between our thinking and them. So gift of thought is a great gift that makes us human. So as human beings, we are able to direct our thoughts, to put objects before our thoughts, to look through our internal sight uh, at thoughts, uh, at objects. I think in the verse in Psalm 16 was the verse 8 that, has, that said, I have set the Lord always before me. In other words, I think about God all the time. I set him before my internal sight. <clears throat> in normal course of life, to think about God is a necessary condition for experiencing his presence. Uh, we cannot mutually indwell. Uh, we cannot feel and experience God's presence if we don't think about him. We have to set God in front of our internal eyes. We have to think about him <clears throat> in order to experience his presence. Lack of God's presence can be caused by not thinking enough about him. The same way that your failure in a class may be caused by not thinking enough about your subject. In the same way that uh, problems in your marriage lack of sense of mutuality may be caused by not thinking enough about your spouse and about your marriage and thinking too much about your own needs and your own hurts. So to enjoy and glorify God, we have to think about God, to think about Christ and his people, to put Christ and his people in front of our internal eyes. Of course, our thinking is uh, influenced by sin. We are born in sin, and as sinners, we cannot think straight. We think in wrong ways about wrong things. But once we are given the gift of faith, God teaches us to think again truly about him. If we are God's enemies, we cannot think about God in true ways. We cannot think about him as our father. We may not think about him at all. We may kind of explore him as a curious object. But we have to have faith in order to think about him truly.
as the father, as the savior, as the creator. So we have to have faith in order to start to understand, understand truly. We are people who live from, er, who think from early morning to the late evening. <clears throat> the moment you open your eyes, you start to think. And you are thinking through day, and you stop think, thinking when you lie down and fall asleep. Are you familiar with the concept of nothing box? Have you ever heard about that? There is, a, I believe he's a, an American, a pastor, counselor, Mark Guncor, if I pro pronounce it properly. And he describes differences between men's and women's brains. And for the sake of uh, time, let's talk about just men's brain. He says, men's brain consists of boxes. And there is a box for everything, you know? You have box for money, you have box for car, you have box for your mother-in-law. And these boxes are isolated. So if, you, if a man wants to think about something, he open, opens his box very carefully and thinks about the thing that's inside and then closes it so that they don't touch each other. And he says that the most favorite box that men have uh, is nothing box. It's nothing in the box. And that's what we love to do. When my wife comes and asks, what are you thinking? I say, nothing. But I suspect that's not possible. I think it's just a strategy to divert the question and not to reveal what I'm think really thinking about. I think we as people are intentional beings. We always think about something. And so what kind of thoughts fill out your days? Fearful thoughts about your future? Fearful thoughts about future of your children? By the power of the Spirit, try to bring your God into your thoughts during the days that you live through. Recall a verse from morning devotions. Recall a thought from <clears throat> the last Sunday sermon. Recall a face of brother or sister from this church. Recall a conversation that you had recently. Recall the missionaries that your church supports. Recall the pastoral prayer that, just, that we just heard. Think about Christ and his people. Thinking in this way easily slips into prayer. If you think about people, if you think about God, it's a very short step toward prayer. And actually prayer is the best way how to put God and his people in front of your internal eyes. And if you do it consistently, you will be able to find deep pleasure in it. Be generous and hospitable in your thoughts concerning Christ and his people. So glorify God by thinking about him and his people. Second, glorify God by loving Christ and his people. Now, how would you define love? 
What is love? One description of love says, love means to desire good and well-being of the other without regard to your own profit. Love means to desire good and well-being of the other without regard to your own profit. Now, first it means you have to go, go out of yourself if you want to love somebody. And second, love is desire. It's not just an act of will. It's true desire, and that's so shocking about what Jesus says. Because when he says, love your enemies, he says, desire their well-being. Now imagine yourself in a situation when you are well-fed, fully satisfied, <clears throat> and somebody puts in front of you some delightful dish. And you can force yourself to eat. And then imagine another situation where uh, you are hungry, and somebody puts in front of you a delightful meat, uh, uh, meal. Nobody has to tell you, eat. You desire, you want. And that's the difference. Maybe you may think about yourself as able to obey Christ and say, okay, I will force myself to love my enemies, my enemy. And recall a face of somebody who hurted you deeply. But Christ doesn't say just force yourself to express your love in kind deeds. He tells you desire the well-being of your enemy. That's what he did. He died for us while we were still his enemies. So to love means to desire deeply. Desire well-being of Christ and well-being of his people. We all desire some kind of kingdom since our childhood. Our families have small kingdoms. Each family of our origin sets in front of our eyes some vision of good life, what a good life looks like. Before we are able to conceptually think and name things, we already desire a certain vision of good life. How did the vision of good life look in your family? What is the good life? How does a good life look like? Well, maybe good lives means to dominate others. We achieve meaning in life, we achieve significance, we achieve security by dominating others, by subjecting them to our wills. Or maybe your family kingdom life looks like an independence. Good life is an independent life, autonomous life. Or maybe good life is a life that avoids others because others pose threat. They can be dangerous. So good life means life that builds uh, high walls. Each family 
as a kingdom vision. Or maybe you were given different vision in your family. Maybe good life in your family meant service and love of others, service and love of God. And it's not just your families of origin, it's your culture as such that has a certain vision of good life. What does a blessed life look like in your country? Being supreme to others and winning over them, feeding on other people, feeling superior by conquering them, having security of life based on winning, on job position. What is the good life in your culture? Good life is an independent life, an autonomous life. When we become Christians, God calls us to critically ex examine these visions that we have, these small kingdoms that we have and evaluate them in the light of his kingdom, where he says, good life consists in well-being of my people and my glory. Obedient and generous thinking about Jesus and his people has power to create deep desire in you for their good and their well-being. So glorify God by desiring the good of Christ and his people. And then third, glorify God by working for Christ and his people. Simply put into action your thoughtful love, your informed desire. Be hospitable. Let people in to your life. Enter into their lives. Now, I was told that this is a very transient community and you may not want to invest in other people's lives because you do not know where you will be next year or two years later. But think about this, what you will bring over to the other side into the new life. You will not take with you any of the things that you acquire here, that you own. The only thing that you will take there with you is you yourself and a kind of person you become here that has some uh, continuity so what we become here has consequences what we will be over there and uh, no man no man is an island the next thing that you will take there is what you help the others to become. What really matters are relationships. They have meaning for eternity because they help you to change other people around you. So be hospitable in the way you share your life with the people that sit around you. And all these three things we are to do as God's servants. And there is a big difference between serving out of character or just occasionally rendering a service. There is a difference between being a brave man who can commit occasionally a cowardly act 
which cannot change his character, or coward that occasionally may act bravely, but these occasional acts do not make him brave man. We know about Abraham that he was a man of faith. He was faithful and uh, he was a man of faith. But we also know that from time to time he didn't trust God and he failed. But that didn't change his essential character as a man of faith. We have all the necessary dispositions to become true servants. We have been bought by Christ's precious blood. Therefore, we do not belong to ourselves, but to God. We have been given the spirit of Christ, which is the servant spirit. Our hearts have been renewed by his power. So we are not to render occasional acts of service to the Lord as if we were volunteers time and other considerations permit. We are to be servants by heart. Our identity is to become embedded in our character. So we are to love and to work, not as volunteers in God's service, but as his true servants. We will fail here and there. We will not be perfect, but that's not the decisive. Our failures are forgivable and actually forgiven. Now, the story we read this morning, uh, afternoon, sorry, I'm still in the morning, uh, is about a servant. Uh, now, we are not going to exegete the story. Every, in every Hebrew story, the uh, chief hero is God. But God achieves his uh, purposes either in spite of man's disobedience or through man's obedience. And in this story, we see an obedient servant. I would say that our situation is analogical to the situation of Abraham and his servant. That means it's similar and dissimilar but for the sake of time, let's notice the similarity. Abraham is his master, <clears throat> and he himself is servant of the God Most High. He was given the promises for Abraham kingdom means his promises, the land, the people, and the name. And Abraham's servant is uh, going for a mission. Where in the story do you see the servant thinking about his master's well-being, about his master's business? Well, I think there are many, many things or many places where you can point. But one of them is in the criteria he chooses for selecting the bride for Isaac. He was given clear command, bring uh, somebody who comes from my extended family. But the criteria that the servant chooses are reflecting his thought, thoughtful engagement with his masters, with the nature of his master's household. Because he is looking for a generous woman. You see, 
he asks God, God, the woman that brings me a glass of water and waters my camels, 10 camels, 80 liters water per camel, 800 liters of water. That's a very generous and industrious person that is able to do this. And what we know about Abraham's household is that he was a very generous man, very hospitable man. So you see the servant, maybe all, his, all the way he's coming, is thinking about the nature of Abraham's household and what kind of woman will fit Isaac most. Not just from the extended family, not just the formal, uh, but the character that's important, needs to fit. So his service is thoughtful. Serving God doesn't mean to be, uh, to do things in an uncreative way. We are to be creative. We are to use the gifts that we have been given creatively in God's service. Where do you see him desiring his master's business succeed? Where do you see him desiring Abraham's well-being and well-being of the promises, if I can say it in that way? Well, I think in the prayers. Look how he prays, or how excited is he, he is, when the prayer is answered. Blessed, the man bowed down, verse 26, the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, yeah, and as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master kinsmen. And then, for example, verse 20, uh, 52, which uh, we don't have printed. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. I think all of these are expressions of deep thankfulness when the deep desire was met. Where do you see him uh, working for well-being of Abraham and the promises? Well, everywhere. When he comes and retells the story to Rebecca's brother and father and her mother and in many other ways. So this is a practical example. How does true servant serves his master? We are called to glorify God through thinking about him or by thinking about him, by desiring well-being of Christ and his church, by working for Christ and his church. And it doesn't matter whether we service and serve in church or in the world because the world is the world that our God created. So God has entrusted his glory to you. You are to take good care of it. At the present time, God is invisible. His glory is visible in his people. So God becomes visible through his people. 
You are to mind his business by thinking about it, by loving it, working for it, and by doing that to find deep satisfaction in it, temporarily and imperfectly now, eternally and perfectly when he comes. And then when he comes at the end of time, he will hopefully say, well done, a good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen.